Hello everyone and welcome to another issue of Kane and Rince. Uh, in this edition we will be covering Hyperlite Drifter. Uh, but before we get into that, play along with Kane and Rince. Um, upcoming uh, shows include Mario Kart Super Circuit, Braid, Secret of Mana, uh, continuing our Resident Evil series, uh, we will be covering Resident Evil Zero and Daytona USA. Um, please head over to the website, canerince.com, where you'll find uh, links to articles, uh, videos, etc., etc. Also, if you feel like giving something back to the podcast, we have our own Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Any little amount will help us out the main podcast isn't going to be locked behind uh, closed doors um, there are a few extras here and there uh, you know Leon and Jay will record the odd uh, extra podcast to just talk about how Kane Rince is going but the main podcast is free for everyone and so is Sound of Play speaking of Sound of Play um, go listen to it. Uh, it's a podcast all about the video game music that we love. And also, please subscribe, review, and rate us on any podcast app that you have. Um, it, every review and rating helps us out. And also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So joining me, Joshua Garrity, in issue 326 are Tony Atkins... Hello. Darren Gargett. Hello. And special guest from Data Beast and some obscure podcast that you may not have heard of, uh, the computer game show, uh, Sean Bell. You all right? How's it going? We are covering Hyperlight Drifter. Hyperlight Drifter is a 2D action role-playing game developed by Heart Machine. Um, it pays homage to 8-bit and 16-bit games. Um, Alex Preston um, often compares it to The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. Um, so that's a useful reference point if you're listening to this and have not played the game. Some uh, notable information. Um, so this was uh, published by Playism. Um, the main director, uh, design lead, and uh, artist on this was Alex Preston. This guy's kind of key in the overall uh, theming and aesthetic of this game. We'll talk about um, Alex Preston's personal life in a bit, but um, it's worth noting that um, uh, a lot of what this game is is, is, uh, is a result of um, his, uh, his heart condition, but we will, uh, we will dive into that in greater depth later on. Some other notable names on the designer and programmer uh, side is uh, Bowie Bluth, uh, Teddy Dieff, uh, Cassie Hunt, and Lisa Brown. Um, additional artists include Sean Ward, Cosimo Galuzzi, and composers include um, Akash uh, Thakar, and uh, most famously Richard Reland, uh, better known as Disasterpiece, who uh, composed the soundtracks for Fez and It Follows. This started out as a Kickstarter project, which launched in September 2013. The project had a starting amount of 
$27,000. That was exceeded within a day and uh, quickly grew to $100,000 in just a few days of launch. Ultimately, it made $645,158,000. So it was a successful uh, Kickstarter campaign. It ended up releasing uh, on Windows, uh, Mac, and Linux in March 31st, 2016. Then on console, PS4 and Xbox One in July uh, on July 26th, 2016. It is also um, not released on the Switch yet, but it is being promised uh, for this year. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see that by year's end. But the Wii U and Vita versions were cancelled due to some complications with conversion and the time it took to uh, uh, convert it over to PS4 and Xbox One as well. Reviews for this were um, a little bit mixed. Um, so we've got an 84 average on the original PC release, but then on uh, PS4, we've got 79 and 76. So overall quite positive, but there were some negative reviews at launch. I think it's fair to say that, uh, and we'll get into this, that this game can kind of had a critical reappraisal as updates for this game came out. There were a few uh, talking of updates. There were uh, several patches applied to the game uh, since the uh, release. Uh, one of these patches made the game slightly easier in response to the game's difficulty. Um, uh, the most notable difference was um, the adding of invincibility frames to the player character's dash mechanic, um, which previously weren't there. Um, the game has also been rebalanced since then to make it slightly more difficult again. Um, so the difficulty of this game has, uh, has fluctuated since launch. Um, there was also um, meant to be a two-player co-op uh, mode, um, uh, released with the game, but uh, ultimately it couldn't be uh, released at launch, um, but then has been added back in uh, via uh, updates. So that's kind of the basic overview of the game. Let's talk about our histories. And I think um, with our histories, this is probably the point where we want to talk about possibly bouncing off of the game initially as well due to difficulty. So um, let's start with Sean. Yeah, the Kickstarter obviously went all over the place. I think we all heard about it just because... I mean, it was the trailer more than anything, right? It was <laughs> um, like everyone was just like, oh my God, you need to see the trailer for this game. The, you know, it just looked incredible. Uh, the soundtrack was amazing. And yeah, so backed it pretty much straight away. And then sort of over the next, what was it, two years, just occasionally went back and watched the trailer again. And, <laughs> and then it was announced that the game was finally coming out on March 31st, 2016, which was my birthday, which I thought was absolutely perfect. I was so excited and then played it and totally bounced off it. Um, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, just found it really punishingly difficult, but in a way that, like, you know, I'm okay with hard games, but it felt like it was, like, there was this incredible world that they built, but the difficulty was like this barrier to it, you know? It was like I couldn't appreciate anything because I was just so stressed and annoyed with how hard it was. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, but then 
what was it? It wasn't even a full year later, was it? They did the the sort of sixty FPS and easy mode patch, um, which completely changed the game for me. I mean, we'll go into detail later, but yeah, it ended up like being one of my favorite games of all time. I now have like the hoodie and the art book and stuff. Yeah, so it just did like a complete turnaround on it. Tony Kickstarters. Um, of GoFundMe is all the stuff that they use now I find kind of weird because the gestation period of games go on for a long time so normally you know big game com- well, game companies tend to give you details on a game when it's halfway through development or two thirds away through the development so you don't have that long gestation period of like well is it out yet but this is a classic example of a game that's taken quite a while to come out I obviously saw the Kickstarter it was a fairly big deal and it happened to be in that time period when Kickstarter was a fairly big deal probably slightly less so now but it was it was certainly a lot of hype around it and I certainly liked what I saw you know following the game's development and seeing the reviews kind of hit thereafter this issue of the game being cripply difficult put me off um as it can tend to do you know you're looking at what to buy and you think well you know am I going to bounce off it like I've seen a few people do you know I've seen yeah, you know, different podcasts have that discussion. So I, I just, you know, it got put to the back burner, left on the kind of Steam wish list, and and there it was. And then obviously the re-releases happened. Well, the the re the releases happened on uh, the consoles, which piqued my interest again. But strangely, the reason I got interested in it enough to buy it again was Sean talking about it on um, the Computer Game <laughs> Show. <laughs> Good reason to have him on, which is, you know, his his feelings about. How the game had now been addressed, it rebalanced to 60 frames per second, how it's you know more approachable. And it went back on my list of things I need to get back to. Um, and that's where it stayed until we, you know, me and Leon put on this big list of stuff to do. And you know, as as we tend to do, some of us on this show, which is we put stuff down as, well, I really, really want to play that and I need that 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 you know kick up the bum to actually, you know, stick it on and and start playing. And and that's what done. I put it on the list. Um and has been digging into it uh, over the last month or so. So recently completed it, which is, leaves me in a weird position, actually, because I haven't played it pre-patch. So I can only talk about post-patch, which, you know, I haven't... I, I found it difficult, but I haven't found it crippling difficult, which I'm sure, you know, um, you know any of you that have played it pre-patch will probably talk more about. So I'm going to be fascinated to see, you know, really what the differences were. But yeah, t- to me, it's... Um, relatively new play experience but yeah something i've been tracking for a while darren yeah so i picked this up in a steam sale in 2016 it was a few quid off so i thought i'd give it a shot purely because sean had said that he struggled so much of it and i was in the mood for honestly not, not, you not didn't to, believe not me but the idea of a super challenge was really appealing to me at that time and, mm-hmm. it, and it sounded like fez and it looked like zelda and it sounded really hard and i was like I'm going to do this, and uh, yeah, I did it in two days. Uh, that probably indicates how much, uh, how many, how much, how many feelings I have on the game. <laughs> I mean, y- your struggle with the game really kind of struck, you know, struck a chord with me. I was like, God, well, he, re- he was really excited for this, and I was really, he's really disappointed with it. And over the weeks and months of me listening to you, I was, I was like, right, I'm going to, I'm going to take the plunge and have a go. And yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I, I did it, and then I've replayed it in this last week, and more than I expected, I. I started it on Monday and then uh, yesterday I found myself in the final area and I thought, God, how did I get there? And it was just, yeah. <laughs> See, that's pretty much my experience with it, to be honest with you. There's no, there's nothing more than that other than it's all Sean's fault. Like everyone else, I, I, I saw the trailer and, you know, thought it looked amazing. But I didn't back the Kickstarter um, only because I just don't really back Kickstarters anymore. 
then it kind of went quiet on it. Um, I didn't hear much about it until close to release. And I was really eager to hear what people thought of it. Call me a coward, <laughs> but I tend to be uh, a bit uh, wary of diving into games without hearing anyone talking about it. So I was just kind of like sitting back and, and waiting to see what the word of mouth was. Um, and then people were bringing up all these complaints about the difficulty, saying, look, look, it looks amazing, it sounds amazing, but I just can't get through it. And so it kind of um, it ended up being put on like the wish list, and yeah, I'll probably pick it up in the Steam sale. The art direction's strong enough that I, I want to see it at some point. But then Chris Spann uh, um, did like a little competition on Twitter he was going to give away a free version of Hyperlight Drifter. I may be misremembering this, Chris, so apologies. <laughs> um, but something to do with putting you in an image. And I just I drew a picture of Optimus Prime initiating um, uh, Chris Spann into the Transformers. <laughs> and that's what got me, uh, let me win his little competition. And he, <laughs> and he gave me a free copy of uh, Hyperlight Drifter. Um, and yeah, I and I launched it, played it, and bounced off of it almost immediately, <laughs> like everyone does. And it wasn't until, uh, Sean, you were <laughs> Uh, on Twitter going, guys, easy mode's come out. Seriously, <laughs> consider revisiting it. And I was like, oh, okay, right. At some point in time, I'll revisit this and play it. And I think it wasn't until like the end of 2016, like early 2017, that I, I actually picked it up back up again and similar to sean I, I did a complete 180 on it and uh we'll talk about the reasons why so so i think it's fair to say if you want your pr done talk to sean uh, <laughs> no, i'm starting to realize why i was back on this episode <laughs> so uh, i tend to order um the topics for conversation in what strikes you first about the game and i couldn't not start uh with um, the art direction and the visual design. So to start us off, I'm just going to read um, this forum post and then I'm just going to pass it over to you guys to talk about first impressions of the, the visual design. So Jakob G42 says, Hyperlight Drifter might be one of the most aesthetically consistent games I've played. Like with the best pixel art, it's hard to imagine the game ever visually aging a day. The environments are so rich in detail. The little animations, so expressive. I mean, the opening cutscene by itself is astonishing. Many of the environments feel specifically inspired by Nausicaa and Castle in the Sky, two Ghibli films that reckon with what happens to technology when it's taken over by nature. It's hard for me to even separate the audio design from the visuals because they fit so well together. It seems the music might have been extracted from the pixels itself. The swells and falls of each track fit effortlessly with whatever locale you happen to be exploring. It holds its big crescendos close, only giving them at truly awe-inspiring vistas or bosses. I know we all saw the trailer, but loading up the game, first, you know, witnessing the art direction of this game, what were your thoughts? 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the opening section's pretty stunning, right? So, the, I mean, the, well, the intro, sorry, let's let's do that first. Um, Jesus, yeah. it's it's absolutely incredible. There's a lot of really excellent bits in it. Personally, for me, it's when the towers, like, burst out of the, the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, I can just watch that. It's like, you know, it's literally about three seconds, and I can watch it over and over again, just, re- like, appreciating little bits every time, like the fact that, you know, so there's a little splash in the water as it bursts out, and then when it finishes, there's like a shockwave in the water, and then when it lights up, you can see there's like a ripple in the water again, which sort of implies that you know it's not just a light switching on. There's like this, there's a force coming from it. You know, yeah, just stunning. Like so many details in it. Yeah, sort of actually starting the game itself. Not so much the visuals, but the uh, the soundtrack for that first section is just beautiful. Um, in fact, I actually picked it when I was on Sound of Play um, a while back. Just has this really nice, um, like it's, it's all synths, but it's it's like it's got this sort of tape distortion on it, so it's sort of detuning and sort of slowing down and speeding up, and yeah, just really beautifully done. Like that, that you know, that initial section, I was like, oh my god, this is everything I wanted. Like I'm, you know, I'm in. And then yeah, and then it was sort of later on as things got difficult that I just felt I wasn't appreciating the later sections in the same way because I was just too annoyed <laughs> by how hard it was. But yeah, initially it was just like yeah, this is like you know what, what I think what everyone really got from the trailer was like no one was really fussed about how it played. I think it was just like oh my god, I want to explore this like what this world like yeah. it just felt yeah. like a really cohesive and believable thing despite it all being you know sort of fixed perspective pixel art it, it all looks like sort of believable and sort of really interesting and beautiful spaces for you for you to explore and you know and eventually you do get that um it was just like i say when i was just so upset about being crap at the game it was <laughs> i couldn't really appreciate it that's almost reminded me of kind of what's happened with cuphead you know since release you know the, hmm. the aesthetic is the thing that has brought many people in and then you know they may you know the idea of what maybe the game is is secondary to the actual aesthetic and then suddenly yeah, yeah. You know, they hit this this bound this wall of you know difficulty, and oh, okay, um, and and then it, it's hard, isn't it? It's how far do people then progress to to see you know the rest of the work that's been made? But yeah, it's uh, it is interesting how people come to this. I mean, in so for you, I mean, obviously you backed it via Kickstarter. You know, mm. the aesthetic is the thing that you, almost entirely you must have probably put your money down towards i'm sure you know they would have said that was a zelda like type game but there must have been something there in that initial art that you're like no these guys are you know because they they hadn't hadn't made a game before am i right thinking that as far as i'm aware yeah yeah so what was it that made you then you know put money down on something that had yet to be made when it was on kickstarter i think we were still in the the good days of kickstarter right whereas like we hadn't (laughs) been there hadn't been any major letdowns at this point um i think this was you know this was among the first things i backed along along with uh you know the double fine adventure one which obviously you know went the way it did yeah like i still ended up with a pretty good game i thought and a really interesting documentary but it you know it was a it was a rocky road getting there but I think this is this was still at the point where everyone was still quite optimistic about Kickstarter. So the, I, yeah, I think I just I hadn't developed that sort of wariness of Kickstarter projects. It was only like a you know a few later where was, you backed them and they either took like six years to show up or they just weren't very good or or whatever. So yeah, I think I think it was just pure naivety um, as well as enjoying the trailer. I think it was just I didn't have that sort of cynicism about it. I guess. The thing that really jumps out for me is Super Brothers Sword and Sorcery. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they don't play similar, but they there there is definitely a feels like a shared element between the two pixel art is a, a is a really interesting almost like a subgenre in itself of of making games and i i think you know the way sean's talked about you know the, the level of detail in in pixel art, it's it's interesting when you, you listen to you know any developer talk about it because 
on the face of it, it seems like this in, you know, incredibly simple thing to, to kind of put down. Then whenever you watch a documentary of somebody actually creating pixel art, it's incredibly time consuming, incredibly difficult. And because, you know, we, we have standards now for how good things should look, it, it's incredibly challenging and actually quite costly to, to put that stuff together. We think it's almost mm. a, an easy way to out, way out. And actually, if you get something wrong, it probably actually sticks out more like a sore thumb. But that was my first kind of touchstone is you know that's a game i really liked has kind of almost a, a similar tone in soundtrack and i you know i i kept coming back to that touchstone as well it's, it's made me want to kind of go back and revisit that game the introduction is just something that's just so like it just totally captivates me and i, I don't really mm. know what's going on in the intro it's all just kind of these brief <laughs> glimpses of just madness in front of you and it just when i first played it it reminded me of like if flashback was made today you know it's got kind of that yeah. same quality mm. to it it's that shot of like you know when he starts running and it has that shot that's of the, the foot land. yeah, yeah and that's like that's got to be a direct nod hasn't it that's yeah. <laughs> yeah and even like the use of the colors as well like the, the kind of pastel mm. colors and you know it's it's not vibrant greens and you know you know, and blues and stuff. It's kind of all just kind of like uh, washed out versions, so, so to speak. So, yeah, it's kind of hard to put my finger on exactly the, the you know the links color wise to to flashback. They, they, but they share a definite style that really kind of I wasn't expecting mm. that kind of callback. You know, because everyone was saying Fez and Zelda, and I saw that intro, and I was like, well, that reminds me of flashback. So that's an interesting you know, <laughs> reference point. But yeah, yeah just um, the, the the pixel art in this game, I don't really see it as pixel art because it's just so like like next level stuff you know it doesn't feel like pixel art it feels like a like a world you know what i mean it's really yeah, there's, there's a lot of incredible. layers i think that's that's the trick to it it's not just you know a flat plane there is there is bits on top yeah. of bits so there's there's almost a 3d nature to it not quite such as theirs but, but yeah you want to describe the art style as like 16 bit or whatever as actually it's nice. like no you couldn't have yeah. done this on <laughs> exactly. a 16 bit yeah, console yeah. it's yeah, like yeah, yes yeah. it looks a bit blocky but actually it does so much more and the you know the color palette and everything as you say it's mm-hmm. yeah it's it's yeah. a modern take on pixel I, I was reading interviews um, with Alex, and um, he was talking about his cited influences for the uh, for the art direction, mm-hmm. and he kept uh, he kept mentioning Miyazaki. Mm-hmm. And I, for anyone who hasn't seen uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, um, watch that because I think when people uh, hear the the name Miyazaki, they immediately think Spirited Away mm. or Princess Mononoke, and you're probably thinking, well, actually, that that doesn't really share a lot of a lot mm. in common with Hyperlight Drifter. But the sci-fi stuff that Miyazaki did, uh, did um, and Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, especially, so much of the like technology and the costumes and stuff are really, really reminiscent of this game. I mean, other way around, Hyperlight light drifters costumes are really reminiscent <laughs> mm-hmm. of that film like indirectly um and this is just because um miyazaki was influenced by mobius uh um on nausicaa it ends up looking a lot like mobius paintings as well like uh, a lot of Hyperlight drifter reminds me of mobius um just some of the the just some of the architecture and 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 the character designs and stuff like that. Obviously, pixelated versions of those, but the use of color and all of that stuff really, really reminiscent of Mobius. Um, and I just, yeah, I just find find it um, astounding. I, I deliberately use the the phrase "modern pixel art" in in the show notes just because describing this as a retro game just does not give it any uh, mm. doesn't give it due credit. This is not reminiscent of anything of those eras. Mm. Um, it is it is taking the technology not the technology but the the 
approach, I suppose, of games of that era, but applying this entirely different style and and using colors that they just didn't even have access to. It's it's kind of astounding, and that combined with the music, um, Disasterpieces quickly becoming one of my favorite composers right now. Mm-hmm. Um, like Fez was like. If Fez was like it, like if he had just done the Fez soundtrack, it's like, well done, you've made uh, one of the greatest video game soundtracks of all time. Uh, you can retire. Then he follows it up with the It Follows soundtrack, which it, I know this is a video game podcast, but if you're into movies, watch It Follows. It's one of the best horror films of the last 10 years. And the soundtrack is a big reason why it's so good. And then there's this. And it's just, and I love that they're all simphy, but they're all, you like, they're all unique and identifiable um, as part of. Um, the project they're associated with rather than just, oh, it's just disaster piece. Obviously, it has a lot of his identity, but the fact that he's not just kind of churning out the same soundtrack for every project he's working on, I think is a testament to a deep well of creativity there. Like, it's just, it's so good. I haven't seen anyone do this, but I think it's quite easy to write him off as all the same because if you listen to the three soundtracks, they have such a, a core theme running through them that you know it, i could see them people go oh it's just another disaster piece soundtrack but when you actually have like some decent headphones on and you hear just all the bass and all the kind of the, the noises on the opposite side of the spectrum just working together like it just this soundtrack for me is up there with you know the two that you've mentioned already Fez and it follows and it's just an you know a, a brilliant third chapter to the you know to his legacy it just completely overwhelms me the noises that they're making and it 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 does something to me that I can't even put into words to, you know, unfortunately, because I'm on a podcast, but like <laughs> the, 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 those noises that Disaster Piece makes across all three soundtracks are utterly captivating and just works yeah. com- so well with this style and the, of game visually. And this style of game, uh, you know, aesthetically reminds me of Fez so much. Like obviously the, the, the noises it's making is Fez-like, but the, the use of colour in this game is also very Fez-like. And in my head, they're on the same planet, but on, opposite ends of the spectrum you know like these two (laughs) games are working in tandem with me and i think that's why i like this game a little bit more even though no one's ever said that in my head i made it up like yeah these two games are related somehow and they're not but in my head they are and therefore (laughs) i like it a little bit more there are there are definitely bits of the soundtrack where i'm like hang on this could be from fez like i like the i think the uh the music that plays when you're in the main town bit like that could be straight from the fez soundtrack Uh, yeah but um, I think the key difference is Fez has a lot of um, like has a lot of melodies. It's quite it's, you know, it's relatively mm-hmm. sort of in your face. Whereas with Hyperlight Drifter, this isn't an original observation. They've talked about this in interviews and stuff, but it's very much inspired by um, impressionist composers um, like Debussy, for example. Like if you listen to Panacea, the sort of they use it for the launch trailer, and then it's also at the end of the game. Like which is, which is interesting because that's like predominantly just a piano track as well, um, but it obviously lifts a lot from uh, Claire de Lune, um, and it's and it's all quite subdued there's there's not really any sort of active melodies going on it's all just sort of sweeping chords and stuff and there's there's very little that's sort of in your face about it but as you say that's for what the game needs in that mostly sort of you know wandering around these like basically dead worlds like these sort of you know decayed environments it it fits perfectly and it does i think it does just about do enough to mark itself apart from the first soundtrack 
Yeah, I mean, at the very least, it sells the area you're in. So for for yeah. me, you know, if you're in the marshlands or the lakelands kind of area, you know, there there is that that feeling of you know, although there's a huge amount of wildlife around, that there's kind of that gases and there's there's noises, mm. there's slight rain in the, in that area. You know, it it feels like the right piece. But at at the same time, um, when you have these kind of more story beats that happen in the game, um, he's not afraid to to really inject like very loud noises very loud mm. sounds to make the player you know jump out of any kind of hypnotized state they may be you know the 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 stakes become slightly higher and that certainly happens in in boss fights as well but you know those moments where the story starts to interject into the actual gameplay um i love those moments you know, it's the it's the kind of sections where you're playing with a, a set of headphones and everything's perfectly fine and all of a sudden you're, you're you're jumping out your seat because you know they've really infected you straight away and but that makes you you know jump up take notice and uh, it's it's a powerful powerful little twist that he does within this game i think yeah there are there are bits like you say when it does these sort of really loud moments where he's in you know in sort of the production or the recording of it he's allowed it to distort a little mm, bit yeah and Go it's over. like, and yeah, there's that. This is part of your brain's like, oh my god, is this breaking my speakers? This is like, <laughs> <laughs> it's really nicely done. Alongside the the music, though, is the the sound design, mm. and um, I think that that's worthy of note as well. Um, there are lots of sections where the soundtrack actually pulls back quite considerably, mm. and there's just you know a few a few bars of music, but nothing more. And actually, a lot of the soundscape is just the wind. Or some birds flying past and and stuff like that, and I I, I think they do such a good job of uh, selling um, the desolation through the minimal sounds that you do hear, because then it isn't just silence; it's it's like a sign of how dead the world is. Yeah, um, that the birds can fly off and then suddenly there's no life like that was all the life that was in the area was those birds and now they're scared and they've run off it's, and now there's nothing it's kind of a, it's, a, a shining example of how excruciating it must be to be a sound designer because it's one of those yeah. jobs where if you do it well no one notices yeah but everyone would notice yeah. if it was bad um and uh, yeah like you say you just but actually if you take the time to pay attention and listen like it's yeah it really helps sell the world i think Oh, the, the, there's that noise where he pulls out um, like one of the things from the floor. Most of this game to me is a mystery, and I don't think it ever really explains to you what's going on. So if I sound yeah. vague in my descriptions, that that's probably like the game's <laughs> fault, but the game's intent as well at the, at the, mm -hmm. at the same time. So you yeah, get these pink yeah. triangles, and they open doorways at certain points in the game. And when he pulls one of those out the floor, and that noise happens, it goes, wow. Yeah. Like, that is just incredible. Yeah. Like, yeah. you come up with that noise, and like, <laughs> how do you like, how do you even come up with that in your head as a thing? Like, like the noises this game makes just utterly fit the world fit the soundtrack and just complete the whole thing for me aesthetically mm. it's just mm. uh, that noise I just want it just as an alarm or something I, I don't know like, I just because it, it excites me in ways that noises shouldn't and that kind of goes back to the soundtrack like the, the noises and the soundtrack in this game just utterly just kind yeah. of grip my soul to him pulling those switches up or them when they're coming out of the environment, there's a there's like a metal scraping sound. And I'm mm. sure to me that is the same noise that is used in Alien for like the the yeah, <laughs> like the little circular doors that open and shut like It's possible. There's um I don't know if you've seen there's a GDC talk with um Akash and mm -hmm. Richard uh, just talking about the music and sound design and stuff. They talk about Alex Preston as I think they call him a, a friendly auteur. <laughs> And like what he says goes, but he says, you know, but they say it was like this really sort of constant back and forth 
So Richard would do a bit of the soundtrack, which would then influence the way a bit of the world's built, which would then influence the soundtrack again. And it was this sort of constant exchange. And they said, you know, Alex was like, he knew what he wanted, but he was, he was nice about it. Like he wasn't like a total dictator or anything. Just on the soundtrack. So the famous Kickstarter trailer, is everyone aware that that's not actually disaster piece on that? No, I wasn't. Oh, no, I, yeah, I wasn't aware. Because this was a surprise. Because when uh, the game came out and the, you know, and I, had feelings about it, but still loved the soundtrack. And then uh, the soundtrack was on Spotify, and I was all right, brilliant. I'll listen to that. And couldn't find the song from the trailer. Yeah, it's um, by uh, Will Weisenfeld, also known as Baths, um, who, if you enjoyed that trailer, then definitely check him out. But yeah, it's just like not really mentioned. And it's just, I just found it interesting because obviously everyone saw that trailer. It's like, oh my God, the music's incredible. Oh, Disaster Piece is doing the music. It must be him. And it's it's not. <laughs> um, as far as I'm aware, that track hasn't actually been like released. It, it was literally just for the trailer and, and that was that. That happens in cinema a lot, actually. There's a lot yeah, of trailers yeah. out there, but it just <laughs> promotes something then and nowhere to be found again. Let's move on to the scenario and story um, as much as we can talk about that. Um, uh, But I'm going to read this forum post to start us off. So this is from Scrussell. When I finally got my hands on it myself when it first released on PC, I was very impressed. I was instantly enthralled with the atmosphere of the game and quite surprised how little it tells you up front. But I appreciated that as it added to the mysterious feeling of the game. It has this amazing dreamlike quality which feels ethereal and intriguing, but at the same time ominous and slightly unnerving, like you're seeing a glimpse into a world that has so much that you don't understand. The world design and aesthetic do a fantastic job of portraying this with its ancient ruins and architecture of old civilizations, the decaying corpses of colossal creatures from some long-forgotten conflict, and the strange abandoned underground facilities, leaving you asking questions about what kind of horrors were going on there long ago. All rendered in beautiful pixel art with striking evocative designs and a gorgeous palette of neon and pastel colours. Wrapped in masterful audio design and, and soundtrack, full of booming synthesizers creating an almost overpowering soundscape. In terms of art design and ambience, it's up there as one of the best in the medium, and the soundtrack in particular is one I come back to listen to quite often. Exploring the world is also executed similarly impressively, mirroring the minimalism and the sense of mystery that the game as a whole tries to go for at first you're given very little information about what you need to do and what anything means no dialogue or words just a map that seems to point you towards something of importance outside of the town you wake up in after the surreal intro sequence it creates this fantastic sense of discovery and wonder as you piece things together working out what little narrative you can through the environment or the few vignettes of images that take the place of character dialogue in a handful of rare occasions. It manages to avoid becoming frustrating with this lack of information thanks to how relatively simple the game actually is and how it uses visual conveyance of things rather than just spelling them out. One of one of the things that I think is really impressive about Hyperlight Drifter, which Scrussell touched on there, is that there is no dialogue or words in this game, um, as far as I... Well, you say that. 
There's the there's <laughs> the se- there's the secret tablets. There's tablets, yeah. Yeah. Oh right. Okay. But I mean, we'll get onto that. Okay. Apart from those, there's very um, uh, there's very little in the way of um, explicit uh, storytelling in the game. A lot of it is like uh, like Scrussel mentioned, the dialogue with uh, with NPCs is conveyed visually through images. I'll let you guys talk in a bit, but I think what what's great about this approach is that it's emphasizing the fact that the details don't really matter as much as the feelings and the themes that it's trying to get across and um, and the, the tone and atmosphere. Um, and I think that, you know, this is the part where, where I feel like we need to touch on um, Alex Preston's um, congenital heart disease. Um, a lot of this game is informed by his terminal illness and a lot of the imagery, um, you know, the character coughing up blood, being chased by this malevolent force that will one day catch up to him. Like, all of that imagery is is linked to this. And I think because it's all visual, because it's not made explicit, it's actually more powerful. Uh, do you guys agree? Yeah, because it's not, it's not a literal story, is it? It's, like you say, yeah. it's, it's all about um, Alex's illness. It's like, as you say, the sort of, the fact that the, the drifter is, we we assume there's going to be a cure at the end, and as it turns out, there isn't. Uh, you know, he's just terminally ill, and like you say, he's haunted by these uh, constant visions of like how he's going to get murdered, and yeah, and which is quite a chilling thing because then you know you you listen to interviews with Alex talking about his condition, and he's like, yeah, I, you know, I I already shouldn't still be here. Like he <laughs> he wasn't supposed to live to thirty, and and yet you know, so the fact that. In the game, the drifter is essentially kept alive until spoilers until the end. Um, you know, once everything's settled and everything is complete, it sort of to me that suggests that maybe I'm reading too much into it. But it, to me, that sort of reads like Alex is saying, like there must be a reason I'm still here. There's something I'm supposed to do, and then as soon as I do, that's it. <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah. But when you st- when you spend your entire life being told, like you know, you, you're probably only going to live. Like yeah, you know, you know, if you're told you're not going to live beyond thirty, and then you do, you know, I think we all sort of worry that like, you know, the clock's ticking, even though we're all like what in our thir- late twenties, early thirties, um, which seems mad. And then yes, yeah, so, like to imagine actually living with a condition where you're like, no, it could be any day, and in fact, it should have been years ago. Like, I mean, that's yeah. got to put some pressure on you, you know. <laughs> so yeah, to me, like the game is entirely about that. Like, yes, it's a game about. Um, you know, being a cool space hero and everything, but and, like, I think it's also worth pointing out that, like, as much as I didn't enjoy the difficulty at first, like that is that is a thematic choice as well as a gameplay one. Like, you are supposed to feel frail, and like anything can take you down at any point. So, I, you know, when they sort of said, "Oh, okay, everyone's complaining that it's too hard," I was sort of like, I would respect them. Yeah, like I, if they just said, like, "No, this is the entire point. Deal with it." I would have sort of been like, "Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not going to play it, and that's a shame," but. <laughs> I get it, you know? <laughs> it's a double-edged sword, right? Yeah. If you know about Alex's illness, I think the game really does, you know, feel like it's, you know, a piece of him in the game. Um, you know, you could, you know, you could look like he's, he's you know, taking pieces of his life and putting them all in order, um, you know, before his you know, his final moments come come up and, you know, he's given something back to the world. And when you listen to him talk about the game, you know, the whole reason he got into game development was that he wanted to you know it you know once his time has come he wanted people to turn around and go 
he made this. He's mm. responsible for this piece of entertainment. You know, my life was worth something. Now, I think we've all kind of feel like we've been there, be it whether it's, you know, making art, whether it's, you know, feeling we want to leave a legacy with a business or feeling you want to leave a legacy with your children and family. I think we all have those feelings for him. Obviously, he's chosen the art route. And I think that, yeah, that's that's really interesting and passionate. And actually, you can absolutely visualize a lot of those elements in this game. Equally, and I think this is where, the you know, the, the genius of a title like this is, there's countless Reddit threads and posts on the you know, the multiple places of internet about where they talk about the game being more than that. You know that they're you know talk about um, you know the lizard people and you know the owl people and all, all the the mm. different characters in the game and how they symbolise certain other elements and actually how it's got nothing to do with necessarily Alex's illness, but you can translate that onto it. And that I've read some really interesting um, versions of what this world is and how it pans out and how it has little to do with that side of stuff. For me, knowing about the illness going in, it feels a bit more personal. But for others, I think they can see it slightly, you know, less literal as that. And I think that's that's a really good thing because I think it's a powerful reading. Yeah. Um, am I right in thinking that Heart Machine is it's like seven to fourteen people, isn't it? It's not something like that. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty yeah. pretty small outfit. And I, and I think you know we can sit here and, and look for you know once again another indie darling. It's another. Oh, but big studios don't make games like this and there's a reason they don't make games like this one because you know they take risks about story you know they're if you want to look at this you know the story's there for you to go and you know look up and harness and read and, and do all that stuff yourself and you have to put a lot of work in yourself to to kind of embrace it for that style big studios you know they struggle with that because well hang on what about if you know billy joe doesn't understand that this is the point and you know they have groups that go through that stuff so indie has a, a neater kind of production through but also small studios you know they have a limit limited budget we, we know what the budget was roughly for this one you know if there was seven to 14 people working on this title you know what do you cut down on and i think you know visual art matching what is the visual design of the actual play of the game is a very good way and a, you know a cheaper way of doing it and i and for this because it's such a personal tale i think it works really really well and the fact that you actually have to do a little bit of digging i think talks to both the game design of how it plays but also how the story has come about and how you know a minimalist approach is you know one a cheaper approach but also because he's making this game you know for himself and his other group of, of people i think that's probably what's influenced it as well so yeah, to me, I, I've had fascinated times reading what other people feel that this story interprets. Yeah, like there, there is a literal story there, as you say. Like there's the, so the tablets that I mentioned, um, so dotted around the world, um, yeah, you, you find these sort of big stone tablets and then you activate them and then a character, a mysterious character appears who I believe is one of a race called the librarians who are basically long gone by the time... Um, you know, the events of the game happen. And basically, yeah, there's loads of different ones and each one sort of talks a bit about um, the area you're currently in. But then once you've done them all, there's like a final tablet that explains that basically, so the librarians created, um, I forget exactly how it phrases it, but so you know that that sort of diamond shape that seems to reoccur all the time and like it's featured heavily in the intro cutscene and stuff. That was this perfect cell that they created that was supposed to grant them immortality. And basically something backfired. You know, it's sort of, it's not clear whether, because, you know, Anubis appears a lot in this. Um, you know, the Egyptian god of death who appears to sort of guide you around. It's not clear if it's Anubis that sort of punishes them. Because obviously it's the god of death and people are trying to not die. That's like, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> Doing me out of a job here. Um 
and yeah, and then that's when judgment, which is the you know the big enemy in the game, appears and starts causing all sorts of hassle. And I think it's implied that judgment may not be literal; like it may just be a figment of your imagination. But it represents the fact that basically, once this this cell was created, it was then like it just basically plunged the world into chaos because everyone started fighting over it and everyone wanted to be immortal. And that was the punishment. Basically, that was that was judgment. Not as interesting as the, you know, the sort of allegorical terminal illness stuff. Um, but it's cool that it's there for people that want to dig into it, I think. I, everything that happened in the story, I, I had no idea what was going on, but it just totally gripped me because uh, the visuals and the, you know, the, the noises. But then I've literally, you, you talking about this now with the heart, you know, the heart disease and the terminal illness, you can see it in the game. Like, yeah, you know, the you heart can is literally, literally there. Yeah. You can <laughs> literally yeah. see like the issues that guy had to deal with and is still dealing with. Like in this game, it's there, and I, I hadn't known this before this recording. And then you think about it, you think about that intro when you know he, he kind of coughs up the blood, and there's just a, in the in the sea of red, and then he turns around and slashes that blackness in half, and it goes back and it comes back bigger, does it? Like it's just yeah. it's just crazy, like how well that's visualized in yeah in in this art form. It's yeah, yeah it's really well done, and it, it couldn't have been easy to get the stuff that he deals with on the, on a daily basis onto a screen with other people. Like imagine how hard that was to convey that into words to get it onto a screen. Like good job. Even if, if, if you don't know about Alex Preston's um, condition, I, I still feel like this, this works as a, a, as a universal allegory for awareness of your own mortality of, of death um, increasingly as I get older, like, and everyone who's over a certain age will know this, you're alone. And then suddenly the thought, oh, I'll die someday comes <laughs> into your head. <laughs> and uh, you're like, oh God, uh, that's not, that's not great. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not of the religious persuasion. So like, I, I don't believe that there's anything after. So some of the imagery you know, in the intro cutscene of the 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 drifter being swallowed by like black tendrils, basically being enveloped by the void and just losing any sense of self, it just as a visual metaphor for death of just like, oh yeah, you just stop existing. Like that's terrifying to me. Yeah, and and also I I don't know if this is accidental or not, but I feel like. Um, calling the diamond the immortal cell feels like it has to be a reference to cancer in some way as that's well. That's true, yeah. Just because that's what cancer is, is immortal cells. So um, I, I don't know if that's deliberate or not, but it feels like it has to be. It's, all, it's also, I think, you know, it, it's that idea of man be whoever, that, that idea of there must be a way to stop this, you know, the immortal or the... Um, the mortal section of our, our being is happening. You know, everybody's has, has looked at that as, yeah. you know, from as far back as we know, you know, hieroglyphics on the wall have, have suggested that we've all, all looked for a cure to, to stop us from dying. But, you know, and I, and I think, you know, that's there, isn't it? That they, what they think they find a cure and actually the cure is the thing that, um, you know, leashes hell on the entirety of their, their entire existence. And yeah. you know, essentially the drifter is, is, it's been brought to this plane to um, to put an end to that, but you know what comes with that is the cost of his own life. But whether his own life was already doomed uh, pr- uh, prior to this is is interesting. I've wondered if he's already dead at the start of the game. Yeah, because, <laughs> because uh, just because Anubis features so 
heavily. Mm-hmm. So for those who don't know, um, yeah, Anubis is the Egyptian god of death, I believe, um, and escorts people to the afterlife. Um, but prior to doing so, um, he weighs your heart um, against a, I think it's an ostrich feather, but the idea being that basically if you've been a bad person, your heart will be heavy and will outweigh the feather. But if you've lived, lived a virtuous life, you know, they'll be sort of evenly balanced and you can go to heaven, which makes you wonder if there's a, there's a you know, there's a reading of this that the entire game is you being weighed and judged and by eventually doing the mm. right thing, you know, when we see in the final cutscene, like, the you know the drifter is is like he looks like he dies, but then everything's beautiful and nice, and it's like perhaps that's him going to heaven. Essentially, yeah, essentially what they're doing there is you know he well he's going to die essentially collapse with rubble. Um, yeah. You know he's, he doesn't have a, a great death for sure. Yeah. He's set up in the way that and and this is interesting. So he dies there, but when you reload your game, you can uh, once you completed the game, there's actually a little square off to your side of your save, and going in that you can actually just load up a scene where. The drifter sat there, kind of up against a rock, and just in Are a you peaceful kidding? land. Yeah, once you've completed the game, you're, you can see it, and it's. Um, I mean, ultimately, he's dead against a rock, but mm. um, it's a beautiful kind of landscape and beautiful music playing in the background. That you know, at some, at least, he's found peace in this place. When actually, the reality is, he he's probably died a horrible death trying to get out of a collapsing building. Yeah, like. Because yeah, when you you know you look at the story and it's like right, people tried to you know bring immortality about and it went horribly wrong. It's like it's like the the overall sort of point the game's making is that like no, it's good to be allowed to die. Like it's <laughs> you know like trying to bring immortality about caused so many problems and actually by destroying that cell and ensuring that this cycle can carry on and Anubis can do their job, it's like no, this is good. This is things going back to normal and this is how things work you know um and yeah and and again yeah it's that implication that like you've been kept alive the entire game just to get this done and then you can rest like it's not i don't think it's like initially it comes across as a really sad thing because obviously you finish the game and you're expecting like a cure and you don't get one you just you know collapse um but i think it's supposed to be maybe not a happy ending but bittersweet you know your characters just made peace with it and ultimately because it's inevitable for all of us, that's the best outcome you can have when confronting your own mortality is just like, I've done what I needed to do in this life. I've helped the people I need to help. I can check out. So yeah, I I do see it as a happy ending. We're starting to talk about kind of specifics and characters. I'll let us continue in a bit, but I just want to read out this um, forum post from uh, Shadowless Kick. Um, a huge plus was the main character. Um, as a person of color, I've frankly grown tired of always playing as white protagonists, mm-hmm. and the drifter, who looks like no one, was a great surrogate whose perspective I could easily adopt. Additionally, the fact that your weapons are completely concealed unless you are in the actual process of attacking was, I feel, an excellent design choice that says a lot about the type of character the Drifter is. Without a single word, I was invested in this hero, and the intermittent coughing fits never failed to alarm me and make me push forward to find every secret I could in the hopes of uncovering a cure for my mysterious ailment. So we we, we started talking about um, the specifics of the character, but like the the design of the the characters um, 
for example, the drifter as Shadowless Kick was just mentioning there. I, I do, I agree with him. I feel like the game does a really, really successful job of uh, conveying a lot about who this guy is uh, with relatively little information. That observation about his weapons always being concealed until he's actually fighting is is spot on. I think that's a, a really smart point. It just implies that, like, you know, because we don't know if he's, like, the Drifter's a nice guy or not. He never really speaks. We just, you know, we just know he kills a bunch of people. We've, done, we've been led down this path before, right? Yeah, like, you know, admittedly, <laughs> yeah. people who look like they deserve to get killed, but... We don't really know. But yeah, that whole point that he's, his weapons are put away until he's actually fighting, it, just mm. that implication that even though all pretty much all you do is fight people, he never, like, that's never assumed on his part. Like, he's not just, like, walking around with his sword out, like, come on, when, when's the next fight? Like, at every point, he's like, and now the fight's over, and I'm not going to assume that I will be fighting again anytime soon. Yeah, there is a moment where he takes out a big, group of like uh like enemies in one go and he does a little flourish and stabs yes. it into the ground yeah it's just so good and it kind <laughs> of <laughs> <laughs> it, it alludes to the fact that he is a bit of a badass and you can yeah. see that with the fighting but then he does that automatically after a big fight and it, it's deserved because those battles that you you know you have at that time when he does the little flourish it's it's totally deserved because you're getting your ass kicked and uh, yeah he does that and you're like yes i don't know if you noticed as well when you're in the town if you press the special button he throws out a little bit of candy yeah is, it, is that what it is? I've never really... It's just that like, little sweet. Yeah, sweet. just chuck stuff down on the ground. <laughs> I, I played the game with a mouse and keyboard to see what it felt like, and I pressed a button, and he just sat down. I, I've, never, I've never done that before, but the, what a great idea for a button press. Just, yeah, just chill out, mate. Just have a little relax. So, yeah, there's, Isn't there... Yeah, there's like another button where he just sort of gives his, his cloak a little shake as well and just... <laughs> Ah, oh, it's just so cool. Like, not much is, you know, not much is known about this guy, but there's some of the stuff that he does and you can make him do. It's just so cool. Well, actually, that, that sit-down thing, it, it can be quite important. When you're doing the, the multi-tier dash, if you press the sit button, you just you stop. So that actually, that, that oh, can okay. really help. That's oh, actually quite useful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, just on. on the subject of getting your ass kicked repeatedly on certain bits, I found that really off-putting. I mean, not just because it was frustrating, but also I was like, you know, I'm supposed to be this, like, badass, you know, spacefaring <laughs> warrior with a lightsaber and what have you, and I'm just dying all the time. And, like, how is this... You know, it gets to the point where it's like this doesn't act, this doesn't even make any sense in the world. But then it, it sort of clicked. Um, when you die, it plays the same sound effect as when you have one of the visions of judgment. And I thought, does that mean that every time you die, quote unquote, that's actually not the drifter dying? That's Anubis going like, here's another vision. If you go in and do this, you will get killed in this way. And it's just this constant thing of like, okay, here's all the ways this next scenario could play out. And it is just Anubis showing you potential futures and then going, right, no, but that's not it. And then you wait, because, you know, every time you die, you sort of you wake up in the previous mm -hmm. room as if you've had one of these visions. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I might be talking nonsense. I just thought that was potentially interesting. I think with as little information as the game gives you, all interpretations <laughs> like that are valid, to be honest. No, I, I never thought of it that way. But, like, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. I know there are loads of lore videos out there for Hyperlight Drifter. Um, I haven't seen every single one um, exploring um, all the different civilizations, but I do think it's worth just commenting on um, some of them 
for just their emotive uh, value, mm. if that makes sense. Um, so dotted around the landscape are these these gigantic um, corpses of uh, titans. Mm-hmm. Um, you do actually get a glimpse of them at the beginning of the game during the first cutscene. But yeah, you see these gigantic bodies. One of them is just like uh, draped over a mountain. Mm. And there, the this again, this is uh, taking influence uh, from uh, Nausicaa, uh, Valley of the Wind. Um, these are the uh, giant uh, red um, laser shooting uh, creatures of the old world that uh, you only get a glimpse of um, at the beginning and at the end of that movie, but these these guys are very reminiscent of those of those creatures. This was never not amazing for me. Every time I saw one of these uh, these gigantic dead things, yeah. even though like you still have a lot of control over what you see, it feels like they've planned around it. So every time you bump into them, mm. it's the perfect composition. Um, it's just just a great uh, great shot every time. Yeah, I think the, the soundtrack is sort of actively modifying itself, isn't it? It's not like a just happens to work. It like it actually waits until you you see them, and then yeah, you always get this amazing like swell of the the synths and stuff. Yeah, and there's there's certainly lore that surrounds each one of those the titans as well. Um, although there is very little, there were barely any writing within this game. When you there is certain elements of each community that you that you visit that you'll find somebody in there that will kind of indicate via you know maybe half dozen um picture snaps of of you know how their their life has you know, panned out in in the areas they're in and actually quite often how they they took down each individual titan and so and, and that actually plays back into some of the areas you're in you, you know i can't this is where i'm going to struggle but one area is um during the kind of that that crisis they they learned the technology of weapons and um, you'll see one of the Titans, you know, it's, it's kind of been blown to shreds. Um, but then that has an influence in the areas that you'll travel to next. There will be an, another one where they harness the power of the crystals, which I think is the West area, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the forest, yeah. Which essentially the, it was the thing that took down the Titan, but then like all these things had a, a massive in, uh, impact in their own environment and has shaped that whole landscape. So each Titan you come across is... You know, is there as well to to indicate you know what the people essentially did to destroy him, but equally the impact that that had on their society within their little kind of hubscape, be it north, south, east, or west. Yeah, the only one I didn't like was the um, the sort of lake stroke water temple one to the east. Martians, yeah. Like I love the area. I just. The sort of constant slaughter of the nice sort of dog people just <laughs> it's just so horrific and unnecessary it's <laughs> like you know in the, so in the north you've got the the bird people and it's sort of implied that yeah there was this you know this mad cult um sort of took over and um there's basically this one sort of you know you meet this one priest who stole a bunch of eggs and is raising all these little birds to you know presumably not be insane cultists um and like and you sort of like well okay there's nothing i can do about that whereas with the the nice dog people getting murdered by the the frogs you sort of it's like god if i'd arrived 10 minutes earlier i could have stopped this like it's it's ongoing as you as you get there (laughs) and it just i don't know there's something really frustrating about that like you all you can do is just get revenge basically but it's just yeah it's like this really 
beautiful, peaceful place with this really nice soundtrack. And then just, oh, look, there's someone that's been flayed alive and there's someone's head on the floor and there's, you know, bodies just lying around in the water. And yeah, so, yeah, like, actually there's sacrifice in that area, isn't there? There's a big pile of bodies that yeah. pile them into one side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. and, you know, and I guess the juxtaposition of, you know, the beautiful area and then all the people being slaughtered is intentional. Um, I just I got nothing from it and it just felt a bit unnecessary, I guess. There's that um, trope in fiction of like the more beautiful a world looks, the more horrific the underbelly mm. is. And I suppose they're playing into that. It's just that there's not much to it. Yeah. Unlike all of the, you know, the other stuff where it's, you know, imagery about the congenital heart disease here, it's just genocide for genocide's <laughs> sake. Yeah. Yeah. And there doesn't really f- feel like a greater thematic purpose to all this slaughter. Mm. Let's start to talk about the gameplay, because I think we're going to start circling back to um, uh, narrative stuff with the bosses anyway, but let's uh, let's let's uh, dive into this now. Um, and I'll start us off with a post from Scrussell. Combat keeps to a relatively minimal but effective philosophy. You don't have a huge range of abilities, but you have enough to deal with any situation and do it with style. With just a dash move and a handful of sword attacks and a modest arsenal of guns, it creates this sharp, quick, and very tense combat system where you can feel like an untouchable and exacting dealer of death. But you have to earn it. You are very fragile, meaning you need to keep on your toes and use everything you have access to in order to stay alive in some of the tougher sections. But it feels amazing when you pull it off. The bosses are a real highlight too, since they have enough health to make the fights last a decently long time and really put your skills to the limit and are a real joy to clash with. There was a rough patch playing through this game around initial release, however. As was frequently a point of contention floating around the internet at the time, the original version of the game was incredibly hard. It still remains pretty tough in its current incarnation, but when it was first put out, it was even harder. Too much for me. I managed to beat one of the major bosses in that state, but simply couldn't beat any of the others, and it did feel overly punishing. It did put something of a damper on my earliest experiences with the game, but then they made some changes which made the game feel much more reasonable and enjoyable without taking away too much of the challenge. Sometimes I hear people talk about how the change from 30 frames per second to 60 frames per second was responsible for this, but I don't think that's what did it. While that change was appreciated and very admirable considering how much work it must have taken, I had already beaten the game before that change was made. As I found other changes they did much closer to release made a much bigger impact. Initially, the game didn't have any invincibility frames during the dash move. This made trying to avoid certain attacks from bosses feel near impossible and kind of unfair. So in response to this, the developer patched that in, as well as speeding up the animation of healing a little. Just those two small changes made a huge difference in how the game felt to play and was a massive improvement. I get the feeling many people who put the game down early for how punishing it was and then got back into it later with the 60 frames per second second patch could have likely come back much sooner and had a similarly improved experience if they had done what I did instead. The gameplay for this, you know, 
it is a top-down game. You know, we mentioned the word Zelda before, and you know there is a a direct link there, a link so to speak. And, and to uh, the yeah, past, it, you might call it. Uh, <laughs> we, yeah, and, you know, that's, that's kind of the reason why I got into this game, other than you know you saying how how hard it was. It's like, right, I'm going to give this a go, and you know the, the Zelda thing wasn't a big pull for me. Um, the thing I found was the um, just at first I found it really difficult. The just the general discovery of the world it seemed really obtuse at first and i kind of felt that going back in for the second time until you start realizing these little kind of little subtle nods and maybe sometimes not so subtle nods and hints on the floor and things around the world that kind of you pick up on over time and you start seeing like themes of little hints that he's trying to tell you that you know that maybe you can walk through this set of bushes and maybe you can walk um mm. you know or find these invisible floors you know out in the uh, water area and it doesn't really change from start to finish. You know, you can kind of dash across gaps and, you know, uh, there are some areas that kind of, well, there was one area in where you have to like hop around across these hot fire platforms. And mm. the only way I could get across was by upgrading my dash to like the, not the infinite dash, but it kind of feels like it with a stamina bar you've got. And it kind of forced me to learn that move, which is quite impressive. You know, you have to press a kind of rhythmically to keep the dash going and going and going and going. And, uh, that area in particular inside of like a dungeon kind of forced me to use that um, to its full potential. And uh, yeah, that's how I get around the world now is that I just kind of, much like Link's rolling, I kind of just dash everywhere and it's, it's kind of satisfying. Until you, until you smash into a wall and then you... <laughs> the map, for me, it kind of still lets the game down a little bit. And it's I, rubbish, isn't it? It's yeah, really unhelpful. You know, yeah. you, you kind of you kind of get over it and it's kind of like, you you know, you deal with it in the end and you're like, okay. And I mean both maps as well. You've got the overworld map, which kind of feels out of scale because you, you take a, you take a left turn and all of a sudden you're halfway across the you know, the world map and you're like, well, that doesn't make sense really. If you look at it close enough, you can sort of see what they were going for, but it doesn't, it doesn't work for me a hundred percent. And then you've got the, the kind of the zoomed in map where it kind of gives you a little bit more room by room, focus on what you're doing and again it just doesn't work for me and i like barely did i use that kind of looks like a family tree of rooms i just, I just didn't get it it just <laughs> it doesn't work for me and i just thought to myself i'll tell you what i'm just gonna navigate this world by my head and the game isn't massive enough for you to kind of forget where you've been so like if you go the areas are so distinctive that you know if you go north well i, I always these two times i played it i went west and then clockwise weirdly i don't know why um but yeah like when you're in an area and you start unlocking shortcuts, you know, um, you know when you jump, you go up and round and you unlock a thing in a, in a, in a, in a souls like fashion, you know, you start to understand these areas better than the map is telling you, and, you know, maybe yeah. that's forced, you know, learning upon the player because the map isn't great. But also I kind of appreciate that, that you do learn these worlds kind of manually. I get what you're saying. I still think the map is rubbish, though. <laughs> yeah. Recently, I finished Hollow Knight. Hollow Knight does something which is basically what you're describing, where it forces you to learn an environment before it gives you the map for the that environment. Um, and I think that's cool. I think that's a clever idea of like, hey, let's maintain some mystery for a bit where the player just goes into an area, not sure of what's around the corner, and then we'll give them clarity. And the map for Hollow Knight is so much better. Like it's it's a fantastic map. It gives you all the information you need. And I, I just, I don't see the excuse here um, with uh, Hyper Light Drifter. I think um, this is this is a, a case of um, 
the aesthetic kind of getting in the way of function because yeah. um, the map looks beautiful. Like it looks pretty. Um, everything in the menus and the UI looks pretty, but it's not functional. It doesn't. It doesn't actually give me the information I want as a player. Um, I think, like you say, thankfully, like the environments themselves are pretty self-explanatory. So um, if you do get lost, it's pretty temporary. But I still think I would have liked a better map yeah i think the real killer for me is so you know you're spending most of your time finding the little triangles um <laughs> for yeah. want of a better much better term so they're marked on the map but like not their actual precise location mm. so you'll go into like an underground yeah. section or whatever yeah it'll be like oh so there's one of these triangles is here and then you go to the place that's marked on the map and it's not until you realize that it just means it's in this area this room this vicinity like it's really annoying like what well, once that clicks you're like right okay so it just means i need to explore this place and i will find one life gets a lot easier but I, that doesn't click for everyone and i'm not surprised but when they're pinged on the map by the npc like they're so specifically placed that you do think that they're just there like yeah, yeah. It's, it's literally just off in the fog of war area there and you go there and you're like i can't even get there yeah, so yeah but- <laughs> The map isn't one for one, and it's it's really yeah. frustrating at times. Yeah. It's weird this game in the way that it's. I find it as a game of secrets. It's okay to say, well, you know, for to for the main pro progress, you need to get you know four cells, um, essentially to open up that kind of that section of that area and be done with it. But there is eight available um, if you want to go off and 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 do the extra work. The camera's very specific about what it wants to show you and what it doesn't. So they lock it in certain places and quite often you'll just catch a glimpse of a a platform just on the other side of that camera. And you're like, mm. oh, I clearly can't dash there. So there must be something else I could do there. You'll spend probably no more than 30 seconds you know, scan an area. Is there an ability, you know, because you can reveal hidden floors with a button or you can hit reveal hidden floors with um, a little kind of icon on the floor or you can sometimes manage to dash around and an outside of an area to get across over to that, that one section. Sometimes um, it's on purpose and they show it, you show it for you there to get over there and you can find a key to a door or a, a cell that you need. And other times it's for absolutely nothing. And, but because of that, you find yourself having to, pixel hunt pretty much everything and you you do this this classic thing and it's it reminds me of um, playing the original wolfenstein games of you know go into every wall is there a slight (laughs) indentation of that wall is there another one no is that a slightly different color vomit no it wasn't damn i've wasted and it and it's maybe not to that degree but there's so many collectible essential little um coins in this game that allow you to buy upgrades that you know part of the fun is going through every single element of this environment trying to find every little secret that is there you know there's keys to find and there's doors to open and there's more weapons or you know more costumes and different colored weapons which essentially have some passive abilities to the character I mean, not massively important but you want to do it i found that myself having to look at everything and explore everything and jump to everything and try to open everything it's maybe just a bit too much i mean that they could have made it a little bit you know a little bit more simpler with the map um it didn't help i had this where i've, I've got lots of the stuff i've brought pretty much all the upgrades all, all the things that i can do there's a door that i remember seeing in the west and I can't get back to it. I can't. Like I, I know it's there, and I know r- the rough region it is, but I can't work out how to get back to that region for love or money. And it's just, it's frustrating because I want to say it's a you know a Metroid esque game, but there's elements of that 
there you know maybe the upgrades aren't quite there but it's you know there's there's areas i want to get to and if you don't make it clearer for me to work out how to get there i found i find myself getting a little bit more frustrated but there's definitely a pixel hunt element to this this game that i don't think i was necessarily expecting like obviously i'd heard about the combat but i wasn't quite expecting how much kind of searching around the environment i'd have to do to necessarily get um, money tools upgrades etc yeah like i don't think it helps that you need so many of those upgrade tokens to get anything like <laughs> so you need four of them to make one actual upgrade token one and then coin, you might need yeah. several of those to unlock a new ability or a, you know or whatever so yeah, it's free most of the time isn't it yeah so, so you really can't afford to miss any so as you say it makes you really obsessive about finding every single one you can whereas if they were a bit more plentiful or just you know or the, the cost for buying new abilities was a bit lower you wouldn't be quite yeah, so, so it's also weird they hide, hide the weirdest so like quite often you go off the beaten path and they hide a, a health pack out of sight but yeah you, you, you may have lost an entire health pack's worth just of energy there, yeah. just trying to get there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, there you go. That was always there. And you're like, oh, I've got to get back now. Cool. Like, I don't mind it so much for the uh, gear bits, um, the currency in the game, because, yeah, I, I, I do think some of these abilities you should have to earn, like c- certain attacks um, that you can unlock, um, like the sword deflection, I feel like making counters significantly mm-hmm. easier. Yeah. Once you have the ability to actually fire people's projectiles back yeah. at them, suddenly, it, you know, that really changes the game in a, a, a tangible way. So I'm fine with that. Um, but health kits, enemies should be dropping them frequently or it or it should work like Estus where it mm. just kind of comes back when you I die. I guess the punishment's not so bad because it, you're never massively far back from where you, you die. I mean, it can be annoying if you cleared out 99% of a yeah. room, one of those, you know, one guy, the blinking spider or something catches you and, you know, but quite often that's okay, I should have healed. Why was I not healing? Oh, God. I don't have an issue with the checkpointing. I do have an issue with going back to a checkpoint uh, without all the health items that I had originally. (laughs) You'd have hated it even more if you played it when it first came out because (laughs) if you entered that room with, like, one health, that is what you respawned with. So you could just be... Yeah, I'm glad that's not the same anymore. Yeah, like, you could just be locked into having to do a really difficult bit with, like, no health. I think there's almost an, an acknowledgement as well because one of the patches they added more gear bits because people weren't collecting oh, enough gear they? bits to get the mm. the upgrade. So there's yeah. there's more than the game originally. But to another point you brought up there, um, and you know specifically about the combat was certain areas obviously have you know for people that haven't played it you have a central hub zone um, like many of these games central hub zone you have a north east south and west whichever way you want to go and. Am I right in thinking that you can tackle those in any order you wish? Uh, you can't go south uh, straight away. You can go north, west, and east in whatever order you want. Um, but once you've done those, then the south unlocks. So there's there's certain uh, maybe it is the south that's got you know more things that will fire more you know because you've got the the kind of more mechanical base enemies that fire a lot. And without certain abilities, that area becomes would be super super hard to do yeah. but ultimately you can find yourself going to, off to a an area that has you know more specific things that require say be you know a double dash or the, the triple multi-dash that allows you to get past if you're thinking um the crystals for instance is a lot mm. easier the multi-dash stuff mm. if you haven't picked that up and you don't know that you have to pick that up it can be quite frustrating i, I think that the the best thing i can say to somebody if you're having difficulty is don't get too panicky actually just go back to the shops look at what those abilities are and quite often yeah movement is really important 
concentrate on that first yeah. Yeah. and then you know maybe a bit of health and then you worry about your you know your arsenal of guns because you know like like you just love the love the the sword slash that you know yeah, repels um projectiles back at um enemies that's that's really handy yeah and also that dash i can't imagine this game without that dash that gives you that slight pause of invincibility because yeah. at time it can be quite a you know like a bullet hell shooter of things going on and so many you know aoe's on the screen it, it, I, yeah i could i could probably see why that would have been so much harder if that wasn't there the, the invincibility frames thing is really interesting because I feel like we all complained about that because so many of us have been trained by Dark Souls in that. <laughs> so when you're facing off against an enemy in Dark Souls and you're trying to dodge an attack, the smartest thing to do is to dodge like towards the weapon that's coming at you because because you're moving towards each other, that minimizes the number of frames that you're in contact and therefore makes the best use of your your you know your iframes, as they call them, invincibility frames. So to then just have those invisibility, invincibility frames sorry, taken away, you're just dodging into attacks all the time and getting killed. So you're going from something like Dark Souls to Hyperlight Drifter, it felt really counterintuitive. You were just getting killed all the time because you you train you've trained yourself to like like what you should have been doing was making sure you dodge like clear out of the way but in dark souls that's a really inefficient thing to do because then it gives you you know then puts distance between you and your opponent and you've got to get close again before you can hit them so i feel like that sort of colored our perspective on that maybe a little bit but i'm really glad they added um the the iframes the other thing that's really fascinating is you talking about the order that people tackle the game in Everyone, and I'm guilty of this as well, the first area you do, you go like, oh my God, no, this is really hard. This must be like the hardest one. I'm supposed to do this third. And then you go to like another one and then you're like, oh, this is kind of okay. I'll try the third one. Oh, this one's really easy. This should have been the one I did first. But that can happen in any order. (laughs) So basically what I think is the case is that actually they're all about the same. It's just that by the time you get to the third one, you've either gotten more upgrades or you've gotten much better at it. That it's just the third one feels relatively easy. What I ended up doing when I went back to the game and, you know, it had all these changes was rather than just going like, right, I'll go north and then go all the way to the boss and then try and do it and get my ass kicked. It was like, no, I'll go north, do a bit, find the teleporter, explore a little bit, go back to town, go east, (laughs) do a bit, find the teleporter, explore, go back, go west and just like edge into each world (laughs) a bit at a time. And that way, by the time you actually come to face the bosses, they're pretty much okay because you've you've built up your you know your own experience as a player, um, but also you've got upgrades as well, and that really helps. But I mean, it's not anyone's fault, I don't think, that you know people think you're supposed to tackle in a certain order. There's certainly different enemies that gave me different challenges, be it whatever mm. my skill set. Mm. Um, yeah. I found the crabs that freeze you to place, or the, mm. whatever they that. Yeah, because once again, there's there can be a lot of them on screen at once, and if one catches you, you're frozen to a point, and other things can do damage to you. I found them relatively hard. The guys that fired the missiles down the south, I know I could slash the missiles and break them, and I know that you know from a distance I could rifle them. I always got hit by the missiles. <laughs> it was so frustrating. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but each area, there's I mean, dogs. I never quite got the timing when they jumped at me. Mm. So I can I can pick out individual enemies from each zone that I probably had trouble with. But I think that's the idea of a game like this. You know, it shouldn't be a cakewalk. It should be a, a challenge to it. And over a period of time, I did learn 
rhythms and patterns of how to deal with each situation. Um, and for me, my combo, I adored the shotgun. Um, yeah. I would zoom around. Um, there's some really neat tricks when you start to actually engage. Like the shotgun can be relatively show, slow to fire off, um, like its second shot. But you can fire a shotgun off and then go into a sword shot. Sure, shot. You can go into a sword <laughs> strike and then fire. Go back to your shotgun in about half the time it takes to fire a two shotgun shells. Okay, so, so you can actually do cancelling out of the shotgun. Yeah, so you can recovery. do essentially yeah. cancels. Yeah. Um, so it becomes almost like a, a fighting game esque move that you can yeah. do. So you can kind of dash in, do a free hit, almost cancel, and then dash back out, mm-hmm. and it almost restuns mm-hmm. the enemy with that. And it's like it becomes super once you, you've worked out how to do it, it comes super effective, which then meant that I didn't prioritize um, the move where you can jump forward with the sword, which mm. I've heard other people like completely rely on. Oh no, that's that sword move. Oh, that's <laughs> that's the one you need. And, you know, once again, any kind of game like this, I think it's, it's, it's good to hear that people have different techniques and different techniques do work. Um, yeah. I was always never a great fan of the grades, but then when I got down to the South area where there's a ton of stuff on the screen, Man, you know, I was. <laughs> yeah, see, I, 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 I love the grenades, man. I was, yeah. As soon as I got that, it was like, oh, there's a bunch of enemies. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Just lob a grenade in. It's like, I mean, usually that only deals with like one wave of three or whatever, but it's still like, yeah, that, that was massive for but me. It, but at its peak, it's, it's the dash move reflecting bullets back at somebody kind of dashing through a bullet mm-hmm. causing death getting back out there and as darren alluded to earlier if you can do one of the, what they would class as a challenge room mm-hmm. where they they throw you know a good number of enemies at you and you can do that in a you know without taking too many hits or even using a health kit and he does that little sword swing at the end you yeah you feel godlike it's yeah. it's awesome yeah. equally I've been in those rooms and within 20 seconds I've you know I've retried <laughs> two or three times and gone oh my god what? What's the pattern? Uh-huh. The regeneration of bullets via, you know, melee swinging is just an absolute mm. genius. Yeah, like yeah. it's, I, yeah. I don't think I really yeah. realised how powerful it was until I started relying on the. Well, I use the pistol quite a lot because I'm, I'm an idiot and I, I, I forget to do stuff. To be honest, <laughs> I, I don't really remember that I've got other guns, so yeah. I just stick with the pistol. That's what I've got. And then once it starts getting a bit hairy in combat, and you kind of, you know, you you you're, you're dashing in to do some swings and then you realise you've got a full set of bullets and you're dashing back out and just spraying bullets everywhere in the vain hopes to chip away at some energy <laughs> just to the uh, you know just to weaken yeah. the horde and then, you, then you're kind of forced to go back in swords and then that regenerates your ammo and then you're kind of bouncing back and forward in and out of combat just you know melee and um, mm-hmm. and ranged so effortlessly effortlessly <laughs> there we go and uh, seamlessly yeah. It's it's just it's just really good, like, and I I can't really think of any other game that does it. It's such a nice mechanic that works, you know, synergy wise. It kind of works so well together. For, for me, um, when this game is at its best, it's the best um, Samurai Jack game I've ever <laughs> yeah. played. I I just so I I never used the grenades simply because I didn't feel like the drifter would use grenades <laughs> like it was like somehow the gra- <laughs> yeah yeah like um uh, yeah that was just some weird role playing that I was doing but um like I I just loved um especially when he's fully upgraded and I I prioritize the dash and mm-hmm. uh, sword upgrades I I only upgraded um the the guns when I got towards the end of the game um, um, but yeah, like when you're just kind of dashing straight through people, doing that super anime esque kind of uh, um, <laughs> you sheath your sword and then they fall apart type <laughs> thing. Um, like 
all of that stuff is really, really amazing. And and like you said, Darren, like linking the melee with the projectile stuff is is a stroke of genius. And because of that, um, like I almost exclusively used the shotgun, just because it felt like the the ranged weapon that uh, it was the most compatible with that system, where you could just go in slash slash slash. Oh, there's loads of them. Let's do some crowd control with the shotgun slash 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 and. Yeah, I I really really love the combat. Um, I I I do think um, like Sean has said before. Um, I think before the, all the patches, um, like it was too unfair. Like it was too stacked against you. But I think now in its current state, they've really struck a good balance between fragility and power fantasy um like once you master the systems it's you do feel incredibly powerful i wonder if that's just a small team playing you know as, as much as it it benefits our small team kind of working personally in the game and you know keeping the story kind of close and personal but equally when you've played the combat of your own game for the best part of three years you know you you maybe don't see actually the level of performance you need you do, yeah, like you do wonder this, yeah. especially with indie games, like yeah. when they're like, oh, yeah, you know, here's all our testers and it's all their mates. And you, yeah. <laughs> you kind of think like, <laughs> yeah, they yeah. might not be totally honest with you about, <laughs> about problems with the game. <laughs> but the whole issue with the 60 frames per second, um, Josh linked me to a really interesting video that, that talked about the 60 frames per second versus the 30 frames. And, uh, you know, obviously we, we know about, you know, your um, your button presses to response times are, are that much quicker, and you know the you know, what you see on screen runs at that much smoother. Um, having not played this in its original form, I I can't tell you what the difference felt. But Sean, obviously you were there. You've you've played this earlier on. So I know um, Scrussell suggests that actually maybe the thirty to sixty leap isn't what makes the major difference. It might be right, but I I felt it was massive. Yeah, um, like I'm not a a frame rate guy like i don't normally mm. care about this stuff like you know very aware that like you know sort of platinum games and stuff tend to force you know they, they insist on 60 frames a second but yeah until playing this at 30 i didn't really know why like i <laughs> um it just felt really sluggish and unresponsive even though you know in most games 30 fps is absolutely fine you know in just in this it just felt like it didn't work at all like you know for a, an animation priority game where once you've pressed a button you know you've, you've committed to something and you're locked in for a certain number of frames and then like the you know the the dash challenge you know when you get the chain dash and then start mm-hmm. get that bit in town where you you know first you have to do like a hundred dashes which seems impossible but you do it and then it's like okay now do like a thousand or whatever it's 800 for the costume it's 800 yeah um and that is <laughs> that is impossible at 30 frames mm-hmm. a second you just you think you've learned the timing and just doing it and doing it and then it just doesn't work at one point and it's just yeah and i just felt that that jump to 60 frames a second just made it feel so much more responsive and fluid like it i thought it was a huge difference I found it fascinating. There's a brilliant GDC talk that Josh linked me to and listen to, you know, guys talk about, you know, a small studio and the limitations of what they, they can achieve and the expectations of a, a wider public of a game being, you know, so high profile for such a long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you look at that and you just see well, something gave and, you know, 60 frames per second was probably just a step too far for them to hit. Uh, but then, you know, once the game is out and, you know, funds are back in, you know, a little bit more time on it and, you know, I think they changed the engine a little bit to get it to, to hit. Like, they a significant amount of work went into to changing this game over a period of time where someone like me can just pick it up, you know, a year down the line and go, oh, it's, yeah, this feels good. It's, exactly, it's probably what their vision was, but I can see 
the stumbling blocks probably what prevented them from putting an original vision out there. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like I've seen like a lot of people and videos and stuff being like, oh, they made it with Game Maker and that's why it's 30 frames a second. My understanding is that when you start a project, I mean, this might be wrong, um, but my understanding is that when you start a project in Game Maker, it's like, right, and what FPS do you want this to run at? And most people just look at it and go, well, 30, 30 is the default, 30 is fine, who, you know, whatever. And then once you've started work, like, that's it. Like, <laughs> there's no, you know, there's no easy just like, oh, no, I want it to be 60, actually. Like, you pretty much have to rebuild everything, which, fair play to Heart Machine, that is what they did. Um, they went through and they they recoded all the animations to work at 60. Because I guess the, the idea is if you do just flick the switch, everything happens twice as fast, which is unplayable. And yeah, stutters. Yeah, so they went through and just and hand edited everything to make it work at sixty frames a second. And you know, if it was just purely a visual thing, I'd be like, guys, probably didn't need to do that. I mean, thanks, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, to me, it made a huge difference to the way the game felt. I think the other um, thing is. I mean, mainly an aesthetic thing, I suppose, but just as the camera was panning around, like at 30 frames a second, that felt really jerky and like it would sort of judder around. But at 60, it's totally smooth and and much nicer to look at. I think it's worth talking about the boss battles in the game. Uh, I really like the, um, what is he, the hanged man, the crystal forest guy. Um, yeah. Just thought it was like a just a really interesting move set um, and just really good fun. Like like you can learn it really quickly and then it's just a case of getting good enough. Whereas like I felt like the others sort of halfway through they'd be like and now he's doing a different move and then, <laughs> and then suddenly you'd have to learn something else and it, which sort of annoyed me a bit. Whereas yeah, with the hanged man it was it was a very simple just like here's his move set, learn it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just I thought that was really satisfying. Yeah, that's that's the one I enjoyed the most yeah, because it, yeah, yeah I, I felt like it was an even even fight. But a, a lot of the bosses I like is that you know, you're going to die first time around. There's, yeah, it's just, it's just learning patterns, and mm. I mean that's ultimately what most bosses are. But they're hard. But quite often, if you can anticipate what they're doing next, you, the the game isn't unfair at all. It allows you to have areas to stand in. Um, you know, certain times that I'd learn that I needed to stay pretty up close and personal. Um, other times I'd learn that I need to stay as far back as possible and, and try and try just to nip in and, and hit and get back out there. But no, I like I like their designs. I think they're mm. you know, I think the reward of having you know a gun, be it whatever, afterwards is is nice as well. Um, a good yeah. little kind of and then the little story payoff thereafter. Um, and actually, yeah, reading some lore about each one of the bosses is is quite interesting to see how they ended up becoming their fate. You know, controller of the people that have uh, around them. I also really like the archer, mainly from um, an aesthetic uh, standpoint. Uh, I thought he just looked really badass. Um, that's, sorry, that's not a particularly sophisticated <laughs> uh, criticism, piece of criticism. But like, I, I just, uh, I really liked his design. Um, the emperor is also. I, I don't know if I I don't think that's a particularly great mm. fight, but um I, I like the, the visuals for the for the Emperor as well. Yeah, he's chucking those jars around and causing all kinds of chaos. Yeah. Um for me the boss is kind of harks back to what we were saying earlier about it's you know, the hardest part of the game is the start because I found the Hierophant just to be a ridiculous overpower boss fight that I just couldn't handle. Like I was getting frustrated. I was, you know, turning it off and coming back later on when I'm calmer. And like that, that boss fight just feels far too chaotic at times, especially like if you like me and you go west first and you you end up in that room where he's just laying those kind of 
squares down to you know affect the room and then uh, it's just it's just too much and then i found the hangman to be a boss fight that you'd lose quite a lot too but also every time you lost you're like right next time i'm gonna i'm gonna get him next time because you've you're on the you're on the edge of beating him and then something happens like he'll summon two and you kind of forget that the, you know the two ads are uh are coming in yeah that's a good one. Oh yeah i, I did like that one not to copy you lot but yeah <laughs> i'm honest yeah. and uh, yeah and then the the um the third one you know recent playthrough i just found it a breeze to be honest i just bowled in there and just watched the the core animations and just done him and i thought oh that's not as uh yeah. that's not as climactic as, as, as i'd hoped it to be yeah I, I remember the last boss not being fun at all and i haven't played it since you know since the first time i beat it because i haven't been beat it a second time but yeah i remember that final boss being an absolute pain and not an enjoyable one I do like I, I do like the fact that with the final boss you are just constantly going like oh yeah I remember this like because you've had all these visions through the game but yeah it's not enough that you like that you know what to do about any of them it's just you, like you recognize them but not like how to actually handle them um, just a quick note on the hierophant when you, have you seen have you noticed what happens when you kill him he sort of basically he dies Ooh. but then like his um, his cloak sort of stays up for a second and like a sort of malevolent spirit sort of disappears out of it um which implies that he yeah basically wasn't in control the whole time and he's just been like manipulated somehow and is there and like so yeah maybe he wasn't even a bad guy in the first place but who knows you set him free yeah it's fine just to close our thoughts on the gameplay i just want to read this uh piece from uh, simon sloth uh, I'm not sure how I feel about Hyperlight Drifter. On the one hand, the visuals and audio are sublime. The gameplay, on the other hand, is a mixed bag. There are times where it is fantastic and I can zip around a room clearing it out of enemies without receiving a single hit. However, on another occasion, I could press the exact same buttons and be killed within seconds. Perhaps it's me, but the timing just seems a fraction off. So the deflection and dash chain skills were incredibly difficult simply by being unpredictable. Often in the busier moments, the frame rate took a nosedive, which made me feel like my character was wading through treacle rather than drifting through hyperlight. The game rewards exploration, but often this involved either wall-hugging or leaping into the unknown. Embarrassingly, it wasn't until three quarters of the way through that I realized the small squares in the ground meant secret path or switch. <laughs> I also found the game to be slightly unbalanced in that I found the initial enemies far harder than the final areas or boss. I think a lot of this has to do with which order you take on each uh, geographical area. Um, I only recently finished the game having put the game aside for a long time as I was put off by the issues above. The infamous patch which improved the frame rate to 60 frames per second allowed me to complete the game and I definitely enjoyed it more as a result, but the issues are still there. I think the game could do with a little bit more hand-holding and perhaps locking off areas to ensure territories are played in order of rising difficulty. Apparently, I did the hardest area first, but had no idea, and this almost stopped me playing it entirely. Back, back to Sean's point earlier, I, I think, you know, looking at us gamers, we're partly to blame for this, but because well, I just <laughs> listened to Sean talk about, I'll oh, do a bit of each area. 
I'm like, what? No, no, you just you like you find everything in the in the set <laughs> or the, whatever the way. Like, yeah. I, I'm not going. What? Like, I want to learn that area, and then once I've done that and got my gun at the end, I'm off to the next. But you are probably right. Yeah, you learn a different set of skill sets from me. See what each area is going to be challenging with, and and learn those skill sets that they give you because each area is kind of set up slightly different. That may help you progress through some of the, the harder zones that you wouldn't have expected you could have done mm. or actually just find an area that is more suitable to your abilities at that point, which allows you to get a few more gear bits, which allows you then to buy some more you know, upgrade health uh, at the very least or some some um, grenades, which may make uh, the things you were you know, having trouble with. So, yeah, I, I think you know, as gamers, it's <laughs> we're probably partly to blame for this, just not even through game design, just through what we've done so many times in years past. Yeah, so when I eventually, like, so I started this again and then finished it, so I played it on easy mode. I was worried that, you know, because of the stuff we've talked about, like being aware that the difficulty was a thematic choice and stuff, I was worried I was cheating myself out of the intended experience. That was fine. <laughs> like, I, maybe I'm just very yeah. crap at the game, but I... I wasn't just like, you know, just waltzing through it. Like, oh, this is really easy. This is great. Um, like the combat still felt the same. It was just like there were a few more health packs around. And I think you start yeah. with like one extra health. As far as um, I know, you have more health yeah. and you do slightly more damage. Okay. That's it. Like the, the enemies will do the same amount of damage to you. Yeah. But having one more ability, one more segment of health. Yeah. I, I think that's about mm-hmm. it as well. There's, I think that the rest of the balance of the game works out almost entirely the same. Yeah, so I, I didn't feel like I yeah. was uh, cheated out of it or anything. And, and similarly, if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking of playing it, but they feel like an idiot playing on easy mode, don't. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, oh, we've we've long got over the, the thing about people feeling ashamed about playing a game on a different you know, thing. If you can get through a game yeah. at least yeah. see it to end the credits and you've got something from it, then well done. Yeah, yeah more power to you. Because I played it on easy mm-hmm. as well, and I, I do think it's worth communicating that really it is the normal difficulty for this game. <laughs> That's way of putting it. Yeah, like not the the regular difficulty feels like hard mode, and and easy feels like any other game, game in terms of difficulty. Hardcore. So I know you're totally right. No, like no one should feel ashamed about what difficulty they choose, but. At the same time, people do feel that way. Like uh, I feel it. They don't call it easy mode, do they? I think it's like beginner, which which is still a yeah, bit patronising. But I I know like a lot of developers think about this they, stuff now. They and also like, subtakes it with if you just want to see the story. Like yeah, no way is that. Yeah, uh, I messed around in some easy mode stuff. No way is that just seeing the story. You have to put a shift in. <laughs> You're yeah. not just gonna go. I'm yeah. just gonna push forward, see the story play out. It's like no, you die, dead, 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 dead. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's that's not easy. That's mm-hmm. just. Uh, you know, giving you one or two more tools to to ne- ne- navigate the environment. So, mm. but e- equally, I'm not to get onto this whole topic about difficulty. But you know, equally, you know, I'll be the one that stands there and say, yeah, yeah, you can play on easy. But you know, if you're playing something like Halo on easy, I, I do think you're doing yourself a disservice. Like yeah. the, that game plays incredibly, you know, more interestingly. You know, the, the scenarios play out a lot more interestingly on a higher difficulty. But if you are purely like, I can't manage to get through this game. And, you know, I want to see this game and it won't allow me to do it, dropping it down a difficulty and allowing yourself to experience at least what the art is there. And, you know, uh, building your abilities is something that everybody should allow themselves to do. There's also a co-op mode that we mentioned before that was uh, added after release. I wonder if it's balanced in a way that, you know, there's more. Yeah, does it make the game harder or is it just because I can imagine just having two of you would make a lot of it quite trivial unless it... And you can new out. game plus, and then you've got four health points. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I'd be interested to see how it handles like the ending and stuff as well, or, or just the cutscenes in general. Like, 
you know, when, they, when you have the, the visions of judgment and stuff. Maybe it just, player two just disappears, I guess. To your point, isn't it? it I, I know that um, there's a lot made about this being a Kickstarter, and I and know there's a lot, Alex made a lot of um, um, stretch goals because the price obviously kept increasing and he want you know they were trying to earn more money i think but i believe co-op was one of those stretch goals yeah um so eventually it making it into the game was a promise that had, had been laid down and, I, and same as the uh the wii and vita version i think the idea of it hitting switch is to say sorry to the people that you know voted for that stretch goal yeah. and uh, it didn't quite make it let's hear from the forum jacob g42 says the combat is incredibly quick and responsive but has an inverse difficulty curve. Nothing was as difficult as the first boss, the sword guy to the west, I fought, and I was able to steamroll everything else pretty easily. The angle of the camera can make navigation challenging, doubly so for all the secrets that amount to hug every wall in every environment. There's a good amount of content hidden behind these secrets. I ended up using walkthroughs to find keys to open up the fairly enjoyable Colosseum, but stopped looking after that. I just don't think that that searching through old areas for invisible doors plays to the game's strengths. Maybe it would have been better for them to be challenge-gated, hidden behind particularly difficult combat encounters or the like. I still quite enjoyed my time with Hyperlight Drifter. I played through it with each character and never lost any admiration for the art that the game is built around. That's probably what I'll remember most. Not the invisible platforms or looping dungeons, but a lonely synthesized horn wailing over a fuchsia sky. I'm glad he mentioned the uh, playing with each character, because there are other characters you can play as in this, aren't there? But I've never dabbled with them. after. <laughs> I know there's an Anubis. Yeah, that was a, a Kickstarter. But I think it was only like a certain tier. I don't think I unlocked it. I don't <laughs> But yeah, I think there's a there's a few other, I know there's like some costume changes, but yeah, I'm not sure what else there is. And I gather they do have like slightly different abilities and stuff, which would be cool. Yeah, the costume stuff's really uh, probably the wrong place for it, but the costume stuff is actually quite interesting. Mm-hmm. They don't change dramatically, but there there's, you know, the timing in the dash is you know, lowered by a few milliseconds. Um, oh, really? Or uh, there's one that gives you slightly more stamina. There's one that gives you slightly more health, a whole bar of health more. Um, and there's essentially you've got that, I don't know what that little floating guy is above you, but you've got the little floating yeah, the little guy. little robot. Little robot guy. Um, a sword and um, your cloak, each one can be a different color, so you can actually chain three abilities into one if you wish to go down that deep. Yeah. If you want to find all, I think there's 12 outfits. Um, and there's one that actually I think brings your health down to one hit point. Oh Jesus! Um, the black outfit, which you oh. can get ironically for completing the game on New Game Plus. So, <laughs> at which stage I guess you've just proven yourself. <laughs> it looks like the Anubis is the only like actual different character. The rest is just the uh, costumes and stuff. But still, good excuse to have another playthrough. I hope they put that in the Switch version because I mean I was hoping that was going to be out by the time we did this recording, because I was well up for another full playthrough and I was <laughs> waiting for the Switch version. This next one from Shadowless Kick. Um, I found the wordless world and characters, in addition to the vague, fragmented narrative, incredibly engaging. The choose-your-own-path structure gave the player agency while also feeding the air of mystery. Is going east first going to affect something else later? Is that frozen giant clutching the mountain up north going to reawaken? Why is the South still blocked? 
In contrast to Shovel Knight, which was ultimately a letdown for me, Hyperlight Drifter controlled beautifully and was difficult in a way that felt fair and surmountable with patience and practice. Boss fights, particularly against the Archer, and special areas where wave after wave of baddies descend upon you, all while the subdued music swells to match the on-screen action, were some of the most exhilarating moments I've ever experienced in a video game. Even after winning, I'd immediately want to start the fights again. I found the final boss fight and ending to be anticlimactic and more than a bit of a letdown. Not because of what happens, but because of how it was presented. The game seemed to demand more by way of closure. Perhaps that was intentional on the developer's part, I don't know. It's an unfortunate downside, but the game gets absolutely everything else right for me and has taken a place among my all-time favourites. I can't wait to see what Heart Machine does next, but they have an incredibly high bar to clear with the precedent they've set with Hyperlight Drifter. Redfield 70x7 says, Hyperlight Drifter is one of my all-time favourite video games. I've completed the game twice, originally on PC, and a second time when it released on PS4. I first became aware of it during its Kickstarter campaign and was instantly drawn in by the beautiful pixel art, unlike nearly anything I'd ever seen, though maybe Fez came closest to mind, alongside what looked like tight controls, a mysterious setting story and story, and compelling gameplay. I personally think that Alex and his team nearly achieved all of these points. The controls are some of the best I've ever had the pleasure of experiencing. The first word that comes to mind is fluid. I also believe that, more so than many other games, the art of moving the drifter around during combat scenarios is one that can be increasingly mastered and, not to mention, is just downright fun. The sword slashing, quick drifting movement and gun shooting all feel so incredibly good. Admittedly, I was initially terrible at the combat, but slowly began, however, to learn the enemy behaviour patterns, and this, combined with my increasing mastery of the movement and weapons, led to me getting better and better at the game as a whole. I've read a lot of reviews describing the combat as being extremely punishing and difficult, but honestly, I didn't feel that it was really all that hard. Oddly enough, I'm actually rather terrible at Dark Souls and its contemporaries. The fact that I found myself able to tackle each area and its respective boss without too much trouble has to say something about this. I died plenty, that is for sure, but felt that each death was due to me making a mistake as opposed to feeling that it was the game's fault. I believe that the general structure of the game works well. There's a simplicity to its core goal. I explore the map, defeat enemies, solve puzzles, and defeat bosses that I feel harkens back to older games. The weapons and health upgrading all work well for me, too. While I am a little disappointed that some of the scenes, environments from the original trailer never actually made it into the game, I feel that what was included works well enough. It doesn't overstay its welcome and provides moderate to high replay value. Where I believe Hyperlight Drifter falters is mostly in its story, of which the creator intentionally kept very ambiguous. While I admire Heart Machine's attempt to do something unique in terms of employing virtually no understandable in-game dialogue or text, I feel that it ultimately hurts the narrative far more than it helps. 
I believe there is a lot of potential that was missed out on because of this. One example being the colossal Evangelion-inspired corpses you randomly encounter during traversal segments. Who, what are they, and how do they connect to the overarching story and NPCs? What exactly is the Drifter doing? Where is he from? Why is he sick? Questions such as these just sort of hang over you as the player and never really get answered. I'm okay with some level of ambiguity in storytelling, but I felt that I learned almost nothing at the end of the game, and that, to me, is a shame. Hyperlight Drifter succeeds most by its controls, visuals, and overall gameplay design. The atmosphere remains tantalizingly mysterious and leaves the player with a desire to know more about the whys, wheres, and whats of the setting, characters, and story. I also failed to mention that the soundtrack by Disasterpiece is really good and fits the atmosphere of the game very well. While I believe intentional storytelling and at least some dialogue would have helped establish more of a player connection to the Drifter, his mission, and the world as a whole. I don't think its failure to accomplish this is enough to hurt what is ultimately a beautiful and fun video game. Yeah, interesting there. Um, I, you know, For me, a lot of what you mentioned is actually a positive of mm. the game. I, I really like that it doesn't answer any of those questions directly. But yeah, uh, not for it's everyone. It's interesting in that I found... The you know the sort of allegorical not allegorical but the, you know the, the things sort of pertaining to Alex's actual um, health and stuff was a lot more obvious and it was the sort of it was the literal story that was a lot harder to decipher and by which I mean I had to go on YouTube mm. and get people to explain it to me like I <laughs> which you know it's usually the other way around and I just, yeah just found that interesting. Okay, this uh, final forum piece by Joy Joy Moto. I first played Hyperlight Drifter with my cousin while I was in town for a holiday family visit. We hung out in the living room of his apartment until early morning the following day, trying to get as far as we could in a single sitting. Never before have I been so immediately affected by a game's atmosphere. The visuals and music work together perfectly. The feeling I got from the opening sequence of the game was similar to the feeling one would get stumbling out of bed with insomnia at 4am and flipping through TV channels to land on an esoteric sci-fi film such as Altered States or Ghost in the Shell. If I remember correctly, this was before the local co-op update, so we played single player taking turns with the controller. I remember having a ton of fun trying to master the art of chaining together consecutive dashes, discovering secret rooms, and trading strategy advice for defeating the first boss we encountered. The whole experience reminded me of staying up late with my friends as a kid trying to beat a game we rented from Blockbuster. Having this experience of a modern game as a 30-year-old man was very nostalgic indeed. I may as well state my age since I've already dated myself with the blockbuster <laughs> reference. If I were to criticize the game for one thing, it would be that the story made very little sense to me at the time of playing it. Perhaps that had to do with my sleep-deprived brain. The enigmatic narrative, symbolism, and visual storytelling vaguely washed over me, and specific details were most likely lost altogether. However, this did not bother me at the time, since it felt like I was playing through an abstract experimental film. The narrative impact was secondary to the atmospheric experience. 
Okay, let's um, read out your free word review, starting with Darren. James Milky says, hard as fuck. Ryan Scully says, beautiful but brutal. Uh, Ashton Herman says, incredible pixel art. Freelance police, dashing and daring. Will Cross says, wistful electronic pilgrimage. Nicholas Chase says, neon drowned wasteland. Uh, Alex Maskell says, challenging, beautiful, exacting. Mike. Beautiful retropunk rage. And the aforementioned Shadowless Kick says, Moody Mysterious Masterpiece. Okay, all that's left now is our summaries. So, Darren, I would like you to start. Yeah, so Hyperlope Drifter is a game that I feel like I played a lot longer than what I actually did. I can't believe it's only two years old. And in my head, it's kind of years and years old, which is, you know, it's kind of a... It's kind of a, a dig at the game, to be honest, because it didn't it didn't really stick with me after I played it. I really enjoyed what I played it first time around, and I thought it was like, you know, it was a, it was a kind of a two day thing, like just to smash through it, and I really enjoyed it. But ultimately, I walked away much like I did with Shovel Knight, actually, and just kind of just forgot about it until I came back for this recording and got utterly gripped by it all over again. <laughs> and here I am, right at the end, you know, wanting to complete it for a second time. It's really good. I liked it. Tony, I'm not somebody that is all that keen actually on this style of game but it's there was something there that spoke to me that i wanted to to challenge myself with this game and i'm glad i did i don't think it gets every element right as we talked about before i think you know the the exploration of the world at times can be a tad frustrating i think the map is you know could be so much better and would make the game better um if, if i even had the ability to add notes or something to it just like there i saw that there i'm coming back there the combat's brilliant, and I, you know, I've I've had a, a whale of a time, you know, mastering different techniques, reading up on certain strategies, and um, and I think that the same goes for the story. Um, you know, having known about how this game or the, or the the aura that this game was developed under, and there's a lot to dig in there. But equally, I've had you know entertainment digging even further into the kind of the traditional story elements around us as well. So I think it it works on many many levels. I don't think it's perfect, but then again, you know, what is? And for a game that was develop, developed with, uh, you know, a, a relatively small budget, a fairly small team, I think there's elements of this game that is a masterclass design, which, you know, it's fantastic. If you've managed, managed to listen to this show all the way through <laughs> to the end, um, uh, I'm sure that, you know, uh, don't be put off by us saying it's incredibly hard because I think there's a, there, there's a learning curve that I think you can overcome and i've said that previously on on, on shows before but I, I do believe that it is there and they've added elements to allow you to do that and i think hopefully with us giving you a bit more insight in in the story and the development of it i think there's a, a lot to be dug there i think it's one of those things if i knew even more about the story in this game maybe i'd even be you know picking up so much more kind of my my playthrough and that's yeah i might attempt new game plus but yeah for me i i really liked it enjoyed my time with it i'm glad i put it on the list i'm glad that now i can tick it off and say yes i got through hyper life drifter and it's a it's a really really fun and challenging game and uh, yeah very much enjoyed it i am so glad that i went back to this um after bouncing off of it i don't think Hyperlight Drifter is a flawless game. I think it has it even now with post patch. I I still think it has some design issues, but when it reaches its peaks, the combination of like gameplay, aesthetic and and sound design and music is so strong that it makes me willing to forgive a lot of those stumbles. Um I just I'm I'm kind of just repeating <laughs> what we've said 
during the whole podcast and what you know Darren and Tony have just said but like visually the game is astounding uh um, not just visually, aesthetically as a whole, like uh, both visual and and sound, like it's just some of the the most impressive um, use of of visuals and sound that I've seen in a video game. Full stop. Like it's it's just incredible. And you combine that with um, this, you know, thematic through line of mortality of death. Um, which like maybe this speaks to something really damaged about myself, <laughs> but like I'm always going to, I'm always going to find death and and people coming to terms with mortality in any art form really mm-hmm. compelling because I feel like for all the for all the things that separate us. Um, uh, death, death is universal, um, and uh, and will claim us all. Um, so I, I just so play the game before it's too late. I, I, yeah. Um, um, so yeah, I I I I do find that exploration of that mm-hmm. theme really fascinating, and yeah, I I would recommend it. I, again, like I I do agree with Tony. I don't think this is for everyone. I think. Um, as we've seen with some of the forum posts, I think some people will find the ambiguity of the storytelling uh, more frustrating than fascinating. But for me, it really worked. Like I, I think the the vagueness when it comes to the plot just strengthens the theming and the the subtext, which is what the game really wants to explore. Um, so yeah, highly recommended, Sean. I think the only thing I need to add is just how grateful I am that the developers carried on working on this after it came yeah. out. Um, like, you know, we've all talked about, um, you know, how we sort of did a, a complete 180 on this and, and you know, and that's, you know, in some of the forum comments as well. Like, it's, it's like it's almost like some of the forum comments, you know, people saying, oh, yeah, you know, I played it and I found it too hard and stuff. And you're thinking, no, you need to try again because they, I, you might have played it before they patched it and you might love it now. Like it, obviously, it's a shame that it played out the way it did. Like it would have been like if it had just released as the game it is now. I think you'd be looking at very different review scores and stuff. Which, um, you know, I mean, obviously, the game already made its money through Kickstarter, so that's fine. But um, you know, I think it would have found a much wider audience um, if it had just released as it is now. You know, you pay money for a game and and you own a copy of it and you finish it and then you somehow still feel like thankful. Um, and like you want to sort of you know shake the developer's hand or give them a hug or something there's no box that this game leaves unticked for me just looks and sounds beautiful it's got this really sort of interesting believable world it's um you know it's got this interesting fast-paced combat it's you know has a sort of ambiguous story that i understand you know doesn't land for everyone and as i say it didn't for me initially i had to sort of go away and research it and but you know, but it's you know, like Josh, I'm bang up for anything that wants to meditate on death and illness and stuff. Um, so I found that really interesting, and you know, and again, I appreciate that it is you know the developer putting their own experience and their own feelings into it. Um, that you can feel that, and you can tell um, that this is you know it deals with these these subjects, but from a you know. A point of experience it's not just like oh what if he, a guy who was a space wizard and he was ill like it's <laughs> you can tell there's a there's a you know something very legitimate about the way it, it handles these things um 
yeah, I, it, for me, it is an absolute all-timer. Um, again, it does have problems. I hate the map um, and a few <laughs> other things. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just it felt like it spoke to me. Um, and that is a rare thing. It just remains for me, Josh, to thank Tony, Darren, and Sean. Sean, would you like to plug uh, Data Beast? <laughs> uh, don't plug Computer Game Show. <laughs> I should, or Dave Turners will kill me. Um, so every week uh, I do the Computer Game Show, which is a podcast. If you Google the Computer Game Show, you will find it. Um, it's supposedly about video games, but it's mostly just people arguing, um, which you may or may not enjoy. Um, I've also recently started uh, with a few of my friends, Andy Hamilton, Chris Spann and Cami Toman, a YouTube channel called Data Beast. We're sort of trying to do... Um, these one minute reviews where we try and say everything we can about a game in one minute which it turns out is impossible but there you go um, and then sort of occasional sort of slightly sort of longer form more interesting stuff um, we're just sort of feeling out sort of what works and just finding it really enjoyable so that's it from us and uh, next time in issue 327 of Cain Rinse I'm handing the wheel back to Leon as he and his panel take us for a lap around Mario Kart Super Circuit.